If you open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 22. Reggie, we appreciate what you share with us this morning. I think that, uh, you know, when we read the scripture, there's always the context of what we're reading to make sure we have a good understanding of what's being said. But then there's also the context of where we are and what we're going through. And that doesn't change what the scripture means, but what it can do, do and I think this is what Reggie was talking about, and I think what we experienced when he was reading it to us, it, it enhances and magnifies what we're reading. Uh, it, it takes on a new dynamic because now we're not just reading it in a, in a sense, in a sterile setting. We know we're thinking about real life and the, the things that we go through. And so we're thinking about what our brother's going through and as we identify with what he was going through, what he is going through, and then what those words say, they, they now in a sense leap off the page and there's a greater depth to them. It was always there, but we were not perceiving it for various reasons. It wasn't wrong, but there's a, there's a perception there. And then what that does, which I think is a wonderful uniqueness about Christianity, is it draws us closer to God as our understanding increases when we read it, but it also draws us closer to each other as we, in a sense, experience the word and life together. And so, Reggie, just so you know what normally happens out of this kind of a setting is even though people have already been praying for you, I guarantee you there'll be more uh, praying for you and your wife and your family as you guys go through this kind of thing. It, 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 it's just a... It's a wonderful thing. That's the kind, you know, when people talk about experiences in worship, you know, we're in this struggle that we've had now in the church for 40 years in America where people are trying to create an atmosphere. And you can't do that. You, you can. You can create an artificial one. But to me, this, this is the genuine one. And brought about by, again, <clears throat> our love for each other and our love for God and his love for us. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, our hearts are heavy for our brother. It's difficult to imagine losing a grandchild in this way. Tragedy is immense in so many ways. We know, Lord, it's experienced by many. It's even more difficult for the Father for us to imagine how it is for those who don't know Christ and don't have all of the assurances that we have and that don't have your presence in their life to comfort them and to guide them through such things. We thank you, Father, for your steadfastness. We thank you, Lord, for your presence in our lives. We pray for our brother, for his wife, and for their family. I pray you would be gracious and give them wisdom, strength, and comfort. Father, it's our desire as believers to be in tune with you and your word. The Father, we may have that sense of awareness of your presence in our life, that we may have really at the ready the wisdom that comes from Scripture. 
not necessarily follow the wisdom that's necessary to reply to others, but the clarity and the wisdom that is necessary for ourselves so that we may deal with life and handle life, so that we are not overwhelmed, so that our perspective is not altered by our circumstances, that the way is clear because of your word. We do thank you, Father, for the very real comfort that you give to us through your word. In fact, Lord, it is that comfort that the Bible mentions that is beyond human understanding. Because man, apart from God, is unable to comprehend what we actually experience. And so, Father, as we continue to worship you this morning, as we have, we've sung together, we have prayed together, we have grieved together. We come now to where we focus on your word and we ask that you would help us, Father, to embrace your word and that our hearts and minds would be immersed in your word. That, Father, we may in every way truly become what you would have us to become, that we would become like Christ, that there would be this maturing that would take place in our, in our minds, in our hearts, that our approach to life, our thinking about life, will all be very different. We thank you, Father, for the clarity of your word and for all the various ways you communicate to us through your word, through the stories, as well as propositional statements. Thank you, Lord, it's truth. And Father, how grateful we are that you've preserved it for us. And so now we ask, Lord, you bless our time in your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis 22, beginning in verse 8, we continue to talk about Abraham, which we have over the past several weeks. Beginning in verse 1, it says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose, and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the word of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took it in his hand, the fire, of the, the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they, both, so they went, both of them, together. When we think about Abraham, as Christians, especially for those of us who maybe have been in the church for a long time, we, I think, can think about Abraham in the wrong way. We know that Abraham is a, we consider him a great man, the father of the faith. That's true. But I want us to look more closely, think about this man that we're looking at. Because this man was not a man without flaws. This man... Remember, he was, he was a nomad. And he's, he's not some academic, you know, professor who's wearing his, his robes and 
you know, who's, you know, drinking coffee because it's being served to him, and all around him is, is, is life where he's, he's surrounded by well-manicured lawns and, and uh, all these types of things where life is at this almost a leisurely pace, and he determines what will happen at each time during the day. No, he's, he's a nomad, and life comes at you in all kinds of ways, whether it's a rising dust storm in the middle of the desert, or all of a sudden there's a wolf attacking the sheep, and your income begins to go down because sheep are dying left and right, or because your servants are fighting with the servants of someone else, and they, if, because they've just dug a well, and now there's a problem with the water. I mean, all these things are going on. Abraham is, is this, we view him as this great man. So if we conceive of him at this point, performing his duty in a very cold, analytical strength of unperturbed trust, I don't think we have the right picture. He did have faith, absolutely. We're not diminishing that. And we have to pay close attention to that. But this was a man who buckled when he had to deal with Pharaoh. In fact, he was, if you read the story, when these men came along who worked for Pharaoh and saw how beautiful Abraham's wife was, and that was in the time when Pharaoh sees a beautiful woman, he decides, I want her to be my wife as well. There's nothing anyone can say. There's nothing anyone can do. Would not even be considered by most to be wrong. He was the leader. He had all authority. He could do whatever he wants. So in advance, Abraham, knowing how beautiful his wife was, I really wish we had a picture of her when she was young, because I want to know what that is. I mean, we see beautiful women, we have our idea, but apparently she was so stunning, Abraham knew in advance that all these people he never met would be so stunned by her that they would want to take her as their wife. That's, to me, unusual. It's not like they had supermodels walking around during that time. But nonetheless, he thinks in advance and has already determined how he's going to handle what he believes is the coming conflict and, of course, this, this deceit he's going to be involved in. Because he's thinking about himself. He's thinking about his life. He, he is maybe a little concerned about Sarah, but not a whole lot. He's willing to sacrifice some things with her so he can remain intact. And, of course, God delivers him out of that, and then he does it again. You know, Abimelech comes along, same kind of idea. Then, of course, it was Sarah's idea for, since, you know, she was old. She said, well, I can't have a baby, so here, takes my handmaiden. Uh, and even though that was the custom of the day, that's not what God said that they should do, but that's what they did. And so he followed her advice, and so, you know, she had a child. And then that whole thing goes south right away after the baby is, is, is born. And so Abraham comes along and he starts begging God to make sure that Ishmael uh, could have an inheritance and be part of the covenant blessing that he was a part of. So he was very, very human. And so I'm convinced that as he ascended Moriah, he was deeply troubled. And it was a time of great crisis for him personally. So this is what I want you to think about, because this, this idea has been kind of jumping out at me as I've been reading through the Old Testament and reading through God, working through the lives of these individuals, and how we view salvation and our growth as Christians and this relationship we have with God and who we are as individuals. Because when we think of Abraham, when we think about his, in a sense, his greatness, because of a man of faith, he appears on the surface to be this man that is so far above us that, well, I could never attain to being that kind of individual. And I'm not saying that we should constantly try to say, I want to be a great man of faith like Abraham, that we, we do want to be men and women of faith. But here's the thing. You, 
as an individual. Over the past several months, you have most likely lied along the way. You've bent the truth. You've been a little deceitful. You may have told maybe, maybe some big lies, but some small ones, because either you don't want to be inconvenienced with somebody, or it just seemed to be the fastest way out of a discussion you didn't want to have, or maybe to get out of trouble, or to find a way to, to kind of carefully bend the truth so that whatever's going on, if it's negative, looks towards another individual and not so much you. We've been individuals who we have woken up in the morning already irritated, even if you had a good night's sleep. You just, whether you're thinking about the day and all the stuff you have to get done, your patience is already worn thin, and nothing bad has even happened yet. And there are times that we let people know. You most likely, throughout these, these past several months, you've had maybe a troublesome discussion with your wife or your husband. Maybe you've raised your voice. Maybe you've been impatient. Well, not maybe, you have been. And maybe what's happened is, is they're yelling at you down the hall to do something for them, and you're rolling your eyes. You know, that kind of thing. We've been condescending towards people. We've done all those things. You're driving through a school zone and you're thinking, I can't believe the speed limit is so stinking low here. There's no school. So there's no kids for me to hit. I'm in a hurry. All right? I mean, it's just you, you pass some policeman who's sitting on the road. You're thinking, oh, they're doing another stinking speed trap. You know, you're just slowing down again. And we just, we get, we're just upset. And everything is negative. And then God forbid what happens if you watch the news for more than a day. It doesn't matter what you are, whatever your political persuasion, I guarantee you're going to be upset by the time the newscast is over. Because it's not just that some politicians are lying. It seems they're all lying all the time, every day. And it's just driving us crazy. And with all of that, we're supposed to be these Christians, kind and nice and gracious to everybody. And it's not that we're not that way. A lot of times you don't even want to be that way. Or we just, we're not even thinking about it. If that's the way you've been living, that's the kind of individual that God saves and loves and is gracious to. He's not waiting for you to perform in a particular way so he can use you in the life of someone else. Saying all of that is not a way for us to diminish what we're doing and to somehow say it's okay. None of it's okay. But, it, but God is not waiting for you to perform in a particular way so he can bless you or so he can use you. <coughs> yes, we should be striving for holiness and righteousness in our lives. Absolutely. But we are very human. In fact, sometimes we know we do this. We come to church this morning. Maybe all of us, but I think a lot of us, we are, at this moment, pretending to be a whole lot more righteous than we are. I don't know if you know this, but we all have an ugly side. I know I have an ugly side. It's really ugly. I don't want you to see it. You might be stunned. Even though you know I'm a human being, I can be hard and unloving and just, I can be mean. I try not to be. But man, it just comes out. That meanness is all the way down to my bones. And, and, the, and, and the biggest improvement in my life is hiding it. I wish I could tell you the biggest improvement is, is it going away. I think some has. But I'm, I'm just really a lot better at disguising it. That's not a good thing. But you know, that's Abraham. This man of great faith. This is, this is the guy. 
And so we need to recognize how really, truly gracious God is. It's not just some cliche. You know, there was a, I don't know, it was the 1600s, there was some pastor who said this, I can't remember his name, it's unimportant. And I, I, know, I think, I, you know, I know you've heard this before, but there were some, I guess some inmates that were being kind of ushered through the street or something. And so he's sitting there with some people and he says, you know, except for the grace of God, that, that's me. And that sounds so nice and pious. And we say that because we can sound nice and pious. But it's true. Amen. If it's not for the grace of God, that is who you are. Period. You may not have been caught, but that's you. And we need to get past this idea where we're, in a sense, pretending that, oh, yeah, I would be just so bad. I remember reading a story. It was just a little, little snippet. This lady's talking about a Bible study and and they, the women had been meeting together for a long time, and, and the leader thought they had got to the point to where they could maybe share some deeper things to pray for each other. And not that they have to share and spill their guts about everything in their private lives, but, you know, kind of go beyond the surface. And one lady talked about, you know, her and her husband were having some difficulties. They weren't facing divorce. It was none of that. And she was really concerned about her attitude because she had kind of grown a little bitter toward her husband. And so, and so they talked about it, and they prayed for her, and then someone else shared something. And then it came to this other lady. And she said, well, I just, I just need y'all to pray for me. Because, I, you know, I've been writing letters to, to comfort people, and I, I just wasn't thinking, and I ran out of stamps. And I just need God to forgive me for not planning, it, planning ahead. And the lady who's the leader is thinking, really? That's why Jesus died? Because you forget to buy stamps? Is that what we're here to pray for? I mean, it was just, maybe the lady meant well, who knows? But that's, I think we can all see some of the shallowness of that. And I'm not saying that she needed to bear her soul at that moment, but maybe we're best to have been silent. But that's where we go naturally. Abraham's life is all laid out for us. This guy, he, you know, he, he's just this, Maybe he's less than a regular guy. But I, and I want us to grasp that because it really magnifies not just the greatness of God, but who God uses. God uses this guy as the father of the faith. So when he's, even the statement he makes to his young men, you know, we, all, we can focus on that. I remember the first time I really saw that. I thought it was amazing. That, you know, he told the young men, stay here and we're going to go up there and worship and we will come back, knowing he's going to sacrifice his son. And, and there's this hint in Hebrews 11, which we'll read in a moment, where you know, he believed that God would raise him from the dead. But I don't think that he was this stoic, oh yeah, God would raise him from the dead. I think he was thinking, there's just no way out of this. God has spoken, I'm going to do what he says. I, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to do it. I have no choice. I think he's believing God and wanting to believe God, but he's acting on his faith. I think for all the confusion that must have penetrated his thoughts from the time that God told him to sacrifice his son, Abraham showed that the word and character of his God were more sure than his unaided reasoning. Question, did Abraham add faith to his reason? The answer would be no. He put his reason in service of God, in submission to God. If he, if he was to reason through this request logically, separated from God and what God had said, 
that does not lead to you killing your son. But he submitted his logic, his ability to reason, to what God had said. And then in that sense, it does make all the sense in the world to do exactly what God has said. God is going to keep his promise. I have no idea how, but this is the solution. This is the right thing to do. The starting point of his, of his reasoning was the sure word of God. That's why it's so important for you and I to spend time reading scripture on a regular basis for the rest of our lives. So that then becomes the platform or the foundation for how we reason through life and how we logic through life. Because again, remember that our default position is to disregard what God has said, to disregard the person of God and what God is, and reason on our own, in a sense, unaided by what the scripture says. And you go back to what the word of God says. Hebrews 11. If you turn there just for a moment, I'm going to read verses 17 through 19. It says what I told you was going to say. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So again, it says he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. How did he reason that? Abraham's faith led his reason in the direction of this logical outcome, which was guaranteed by the covenant oath which God had given to him. That was his foundation. God keeps his promises. God never lies. God clearly works in ways we don't understand and is limited by nothing because he and his wife had this young man when they were extremely old, way beyond anyone's ability to have children naturally. That's exactly how they had him. He, he had experienced firsthand, in a sense, God working with a, through a dead man. All right, He was the dead man physically, and yet he was able to produce an offspring. And so thinking through that, he came to that understanding. The words of the covenant, I believe, supported his faith. His faith guided his reasoning. So again, his reasoning is not illogical. Right? Because that's where, that's, where that's where the world wants us to go. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, if you don't believe in God, it doesn't make any sense. If you have a wrong definition of who God is, it doesn't make any sense. But if you understand who God is and how God has proven himself, it only makes all the sense in the world. It really does. When I think about, you know, I've told you before that a lot of times at a funeral, especially if there's a good number of unbelievers, I will relate to individuals a story that many of them are at least are f somewhat familiar with, and that is there was that cult in California. I have to say that there was several cults in California. Um, there was a cult in California where one morning, remember, they, uh, 38 people all dead, all wearing black ninja pajamas. They're all sleeping in bunk beds, and they're all dead, all committed suicide. And it was this cult that had been around for a while. And basically, the idea was the world's coming to an end, and they were going to be rescued by a UFO. And the way you get on the UFO is the UFO is going to lower down an invisible ladder. And the way to ascend the invisible ladder was they all had to die at the same time. And we all think that is really whacked, which it is. There's no corroborating evidence about that kind of thing happening. I do think sometimes the world may think what we think about the afterlife is in that genre, but we know it's not for many different reasons. And one of those is because we know that God is, and that God exists, and God has proven himself, and God keeps his promises. That is a sure and solid foundation. 
Just in case you were wondering, UFOs and invisible ladder is not a firm foundation. But God is and what he said is. And so we, we recognize that and that's what, and so his faith was guided, uh, his faith guided his reasoning and that's what guides our reasoning. In fact, I believe that if Abraham had not reasoned by faith in what God literally said, then he would have succumbed to maybe reinterpreting what God had commanded. Maybe he would have thought about it figuratively. But we know he didn't because he took the knife. And as the Bible points out, he was bringing the knife down on his son when the angel called out to him and told him to stop. Which is really, it's, it's amazing when you think about it. He was ready to sacrifice Isaac. So faith took God at his word. For faith to be faith, it has to take God at face value. To proceed by, any other, by another way is to introduce independent human reasoning into the scriptural situation and so as to place a filter over what God is really saying so as to view it differently. So I want us to get back to understanding that that is what you and I do as Christians. It is, in one sense, it's simple, but it's also profound. That we simply take God at his word. I mean, if you, just think about it. How do you know the gospel? Well, it's in the Bible. It's the only way we know that. It, it's there. We've, we're born way past all these individuals. And, I just, and I, we take the Bible for what it actually says. Period. And it says... If you place your faith in Christ, you will be saved. You will be forgiven of your sin. You will be adopted as God's child into his family. That's what it says. What other reason do I have to believe that? Well, I, I don't. I don't have another book that tells me that. It's what it says. My faith is in this. Yes, it's true. This continues to, to prove itself to be true. But even before I knew all that, I knew that it was true. I believed it was true. It has withstood the test of time. It's been attacked for hundreds and hundreds of years and continues to stand fast. We are not, again, believing in the illogical or the unreasonable. We are not, the world will view us as being ignorant and maybe even being wackos, religious fanatics. But it's, we're not. We just simply are not. We are not brainwashed. We, we, you know, we, we, I don't preach messages where I tell you, now listen, we're not recording this today. We don't want anyone else to hear. This is only for you. That's how cults work, right? Our message is an open message. We invite people to our services. They can come to anyone they want to. There's no, I mean, there's no like, well, there's, well, you have to go to this one first so you can understand the rest. There are things they need to know, but there's no, you know, Keep this secret. Don't let them go in that room. That would be way too much for them. Oh, come in any room you want to. Listen to any message you want. If we're going through the book of Revelation, they want to come right smack in the middle of it, fine. We're good with that. We have nothing to be ashamed of. And so the idea here is that, that we, we simply we take God for what he says, and there's nothing that's hidden, and this is what we believe in. And this is why we are here. And that's why we also have this great assurance that our children can have faith in God as we do. They can understand. Your eight-year-old can understand what sin is. They, they can understand who Jesus was. They can understand what it meant, what it means that he lived this perfect life. 
They can understand what it means that the reason why he came was so that he could be our substitute for sin. I know there's those in the world who think, oh, no, that's way too much for kids, which is just really weird when you look at what's going on in the world with kids. But the bottom line is, is that they can, they can get that, and they can actually understand. They can understand that they are condemned. I remember my oldest son when he was four years old. We were talking about religious things, and I asked him if he loved Jesus. And this is what he said. Yes, but not the way I'm supposed to. Where does that come from? That comes from being exposed to the word of God at home and at church. And from an old Hawaiian lady that was his teacher named Thelma Harvest. He would just continue to teach them the simple truth of scripture. And he knew that. It's fantastic. So can your child, can your grandchild become a true believer in Jesus Christ? Yes, absolutely. What we have to guard against is to make sure they're not doing it just to make us happy. We want to make sure they understand it, and they can. They can, absolutely. That's a great comfort to us. It's not going to be like how it was back in the days of Martin Luther when when your child dies, and we say, well, your child is outside the church. They're not going to go to heaven, but pay us some money, and we can make sure it's all going to be good. No, we don't do any of that. It's an open book. There's the message. This is what God has said. This is the way of salvation. Human beings are sinners. And back of that again is our desire, our want to be independent from God. That means first and foremost that we want to be independent interpreters of the world and everything in it, including God's word. That's why you hear me often discuss Someone said it's odd that I do this because I'm so against human psychology. I talk a lot about it. And there's some good things you can get out of it. But human psychology is just that. A study of the soul apart from God and apart from the belief in God. And that's why it's so filled with so much trouble and misinformation. We want to develop our ethics independently from God and his word. We want to develop our morality independent from God and his word. Where do you think we get these changing ideas that at one time, you know, same sex, sexual unions was wrong and immoral, and now it's okay. What, how does that happen? You, you reason outside of Scripture, outside of God's revelation. When it comes to all the gender issues, the Bible says wisdom begins with what? The knowledge of God. Understanding begins with what? The knowledge of God. Knowledge begins with the knowledge of God. It's what it begins with. You begin apart from that, and you lead to all these things that we have going on. So one guy pointed out, even though on, in one website it says that there's officially 89 different genders, if you go to the hospital for gender surgery, you still only have two options. There's only two. There's not 89. There's two. And so we begin with God. When it comes to marriage, when it comes to evolution, when it comes to all of these things, man's desire is to develop these things and to think about these things apart from what God has said. We're not saying be brainwashed. We're not saying be dumb. We're not saying don't think. We're saying open your mind completely. And you begin with this. You don't believe that's true? Check it out. You see that this comports to reality. There's a consistency that's there. That's what Abraham did. And he, and he acted on it. So he's, he's a man of great faith. That's why he's the father of faith, because he acted on it. This urge for independence from our creator is the default setting of every single sinner. It is the makeup of our own flesh. 
and it's not erased by the new birth. What this means for the unsaved is that their reasoning is directed away from theistic explanations of the world. For the saved, it means that biblical interpretations will be largely affected by the independence drive to reassess the words of God, used in order to accommodate autonomous reasoning and formulation, which seems to be required by such reasoning. And so I've, had, I've read and I've had discussions with individuals who say, well, I know that the Bible says we have to believe in Christ. And what that really means is, is they need to possess the spirit of Christ. You don't only have to believe in the real resurrection, but we believe in the spirit of the resurrection. What in the world, where does that come from? Man's desire to move away from the absolute truth and statements of what the scripture says. We don't like that. It's excluding people. You know what, if you want to sell me a barrel of apples, I do expect you to exclude the oranges. I'm not buying oranges, I'm buying apples. Right? There's no way to do that. We're dealing with, with the truth of what the Word of God says. And we begin by submitting to that, which began when you came to Christ. When you come to Christ, you are submitting to the truth of the Word of God. I am a sinner. There is no way I can earn my way to God. I cannot be forgiven by anything that I do. There's no way to earn forgiveness. I am already condemned to hell. Nothing can change that save God himself. And God changed that by sending his son, Christ, into the world. And Jesus then lived this life in perfect obedience to the word of God. And as he did so, he did so in one sense, thinking of you and me, to save those who were lost, and then when he went to the cross, he did so willingly. We sing a song. He could have called 10,000 angels. Well, there's truth behind that. He did have that ability. They could have come and wiped everybody out, and he could have gotten down from the cross. But he didn't do that. He did so willingly and saw it all the way through, suffering death, taking our place. We talk about the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That's what that is. That's what the Bible teaches. I just, that's what it says. I believe that. The Bible tells me how to think about the crucifixion. He was then buried. He lived. He, he, he was in the grave three days. He then rose again. There was evidence he rose again. He is alive now. I know that because that's what the Bible says. I believe that. And if you believe that, you are born again. You don't make it happen. God makes it happen. God regenerates your heart. God opened your eyes so you could understand. God gave you the faith to believe, to ensure you would be saved. And I believe with all of my heart, mind, and soul. And if you are a believer, you believe with all of your heart, mind, and soul. Imperfectly, yes, because the flesh is weak, but we believe. And we, and we promote that. We announce that when we are baptized. We, we, we are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Proclaiming that we have embraced Christianity. We've embraced Christ. And we've been raised to walk in newness of life. And we declare that in front of our Christian family. And we, and we join the church. Identifying with this group of individuals who are in this life and struggle together. Moving forward. That's what it is. This great man of faith. He was a troubled man like you and I. And maybe we would have had a hard time walking up that hill with a knife in hand, and our son to sacrifice him. I don't think he did it stoically. I don't think he broke out into a quick jog to make that happen. 
Maybe there were, it's hard to say if there was any reluctance there, but he just simply had that he, he believed, in a sense, he was in a corner. You've got to take God at his word. There is no other option. There's no other choice. Nothing else makes sense. And he believed. We believe. What a great God we have to make this salvation available to everyone. And again, it's not to the untroubled. It's not to the one who lives perfectly. No, it's to, it's to those who are just simply a mess. You and I were a mess. We're inconsistent emotionally. We're inconsistent in our stability. I mean, it's just we're all over the map sometimes. How good is God? How great is God? So I want us to to grasp who Abraham was in that sense. Not that we can wear the title, father of the faith, belongs to Abraham. But he was really no different than you and me. Not at all. It's not the great faith. It's who the faith is in. It's a great God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we are so thankful. When we look at the life of Abraham, Father, it's, it's easy for us to begin to imagine what, what this, this incredibly great man who almost sprinted up the hill couldn't wait to sacrifice his son because he knew what you would do. But that's not the picture that we have. We thank you. We thank you, Father, for allowing us to see the humanness of Abraham, his flaws, so that we may know and understand, Lord, that when you, then you say that you love us, that is absolutely possible. And very real, because that's been your consistent character through all of time. We thank you for the gospel message. We thank you, Lord, that not only does it save sophisticated adults, but the unsophisticated and even the child. We pray, Lord, that we would cling to the gospel even stronger than before. And that we were without shame declare the gospel, because as the scripture says, it is the power of God. To those who are being saved. As always, Father, we do ask that if there are any here this morning who, who don't know Christ, we pray, Lord, in your grace and in your strength and your wisdom, that, Lord, you would reveal to them their need of Christ, that there's an emptiness that is there, that there is a guilt that is there, that they have been living in rebellion to you, and that you care for them. The gospel message is there for them. They believe in Christ. They will be forgiven. And we ask, Lord, that you would regenerate their hearts. Father, we ask that you would use this word, what we've read in Genesis and Hebrews in our lives, to strengthen us and to help us become more like your son Christ. And that we will grow in confidence in you. That we'll be encouraged. Thank you, Father. Thank you so much. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.